Welcome here. I'm glad you could join us today for our continuing on in our series called Family Matters. It's the idea where we sit together and we talk about things uh, as a family of believers that need to kind of be reoriented a little bit. So we started our series in talking about the idea of what it meant for us to be one, that we're in one kingdom, so we're no longer foreigners and strangers. We are adopted sons and daughters into the family of God and that we are the dwelling place of God. And being the dwelling place of God, being in the family of God, being part of the kingdom of God, we need to treat each other as though those things are true, because they are. And we talked about what it meant to love, to have this agape love, the act of goodwill towards others. And we talked about the filial love, which is this heartfelt affection that we would have for each other. These are both um, commanded of us and, and encouraged within us that can grow within us where we may have difficulty in those areas. Last week, we had that really difficult conversation about what it meant to forgive and wrestled with the notion of what if God forgave the way we did? And if God forgave the way we did, then we would be people without hope. And so it's just by the grace of God that we're able to have that joy in knowing that He forgives the way He forgives completely. And we're to become more and more like Him. And so in the idea of becoming more and more like Him, uh, today, I want to talk about the idea of what it means for us to be people who serve. Um, we, we grow up in life from a very young age thinking the world is about us. And so our, our message for today is that it isn't about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to be looking at verses 35 to 45 for our message today. Uh, but we're going to be kind of in other areas of the scriptures as well. But Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. And when you have it, uh, I'm just going to be reading verses 35 uh, to 38. Verse 35 to 38. Now, if you don't know where the Gospel of Mark is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Yeah, don't be ashamed to use it. It's actually one of the ways we become familiar with where things are in the Bible. So, Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to be reading verses 35 to 38. Here's what it says. Then James and John, son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And what do you want me to do? He asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can be answered. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for today. And I thank you for our opportunity to have your word so that we can study it, learn from it, learn more about who you are, how you interacted with the disciples, how you interacted with Israel, how you interact with your creation. So Lord, that we can understand how you interact with us. And Jesus, as we are looking into your word today, our desire is to become more and more like you. So in our love, in our forgiveness, in our understanding of what it means to be one, Lord, that we would even today have a better appreciation, a greater understanding of what it means for us to be a people who serve as a, as a disposition, as a starting place, rather than a desire to be served. In your name I pray. Amen. So there's this story of uh, trying to explain the difference between heaven and hell. And uh, it, it kind of goes like this. Like, so imagine that in both places, there was a table set with a giant pot of soup. Pick your favorite soup, or maybe it's a stew. Pick your favorite stew. And 
there was one requirement that you had in order to be able to eat this soup. You could only use this one really, really long spoon. You figure maybe it's about this long. And you were only able to hold on to the very end of the spoon in order to be able to eat the soup. So the group in hell did all that they could to be able to make this full soup or this spoonful of soup reach their mouths. And so if you can imagine that they're trying to trying to figure out a way to get to it, but it's just not coming, right? Like it's just, their arms aren't long enough. They're not able to be able to reach their own mouths. And so they just began to grow more and more frustrated because there was no way for them to be able to reach their mouths with the spoon. The group in heaven took a different approach. Instead of focusing on themselves, they used that large spoon to feed each other. They served the other person across the table, and in this way, every single person was fed and they were satisfied. Now, this isn't a biblically accurate analogy or story about heaven and hell, but it does give us this idea of these two radically different approaches to life, right? If I'm only in it for myself, then there's a limitation to what I'm going to be able to accomplish. If I'm in it for others and with others, then there's a great deal more that we can accomplish. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 actually speak of this. It says, you know, two are better than one because they get more return for their labor. So when we focus on ourselves exclusively, we have a tendency to miss out on things. If we all serve one another, we all end up having what we need. And that right there is kind of this undercurrent that should be within the Christian walk. That as we serve each other, our needs are taken care of, as we are taking care of the needs of others. We know that Jesus didn't come into this world to be served. He came to serve and to give his life on the cross for us to meet our most profound and most significant need of forgiveness of sin and to be reunited into that relationship with the Father. This, extent, this forgiveness of this sin extended to this incredible gift of eternal life that we gained from him. The scripture goes further in proclaiming that what, then simply what Jesus did for us, right? Like it wasn't, if it was just simply the story, he was born and then he died for our sins, then, then that was it. But there's so much going on within the scriptures that talk about the life of Jesus and how he lived out um, what it meant to be human by his design. And it calls us to follow in his footsteps and to serve as he was served. Now, I think one of the most striking examples we have of people who were focused on being served rather than being servants were James and John. Now, these are disciples of Jesus. Uh, they walked with Jesus for some time. They were called Sons of Thunder, so they got this nickname, right, because they were just these really ambitious um, and bold guys, and they come along to Jesus, and, and they talk about being able to be sat at his right and his left hand. Now, here's what I find fascinating about the story, right? So that's Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. But immediately before that, uh, picture this, Jesus predicts his death for the third time. So here's what's going on. So Jesus is here, He's talking about, hey, I got to go. I got to be handed over to people. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to kill me. But don't worry, I'm going to rise on the third day. And, and the response to that from James and John, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come to glory? Like, I just want you to picture that for a moment because it seems like one of the most inappropriate responses 
that you could think of, right? I mean, you, you read the story and you're like, man, these guys were idiots. Why would they ask for that kind of thing? But I sit here and I wonder, like, am I any real, really any different? Like after Jesus says something or he does something, do, do I lead in with the question of, okay, but what about me? Like, what do I get from this? How do I benefit? You know, thanks, Jesus, for your work and all the suffering you're going to do and, and, and you're going to be raised on this third day. Hey, that's awesome. Um, yeah, how about me? What can I gain from this? Seems to be what's, what's going on here, right? So just before this conversation, Jesus is given his final, most detailed prediction of his trial, his suffering, his death, uh, and his resurrection. And he's about to enter Jerusalem and confront this temple-based upper class of Judaism. James and John request places of authority and seats at the right and left hand of Jesus. And like they seem to have missed everything that Jesus was talking about. And I can't help but wonder how much I miss. Right? Like Jesus, Jesus has so much to say. There's so much going on in scripture. And I just sit back and I'm like, how much do I actually miss? Like they recognize that Jesus is going to be glorified, right? Like they recognize that he's going to be exalted, that he is, he, he wins the day. And the authority that he's displayed in his ministry is going to lead to something big, and, and, and they want to capitalize on it. So when Jesus gently scolds these two for their lack of knowledge and speaks to them about this cup that he's got to drink, this baptism that he has to enter into, he reminds them that violence and death await him in Jerusalem. Like these are the things waiting for him in Jerusalem. And although James and John's affirm their willingness to endure the suffering with Jesus, he actually waits until later on in, in chapter 14, verses 26 to 50, where he tells them, like, you're, you're all going to run off. Instead, in chapter 10, verse 41 to 45, he addresses their desire for power and prestige. He addresses their, their desire for putting self first. And he challenges the selfish ambitions and the desires that these brothers are talking about that are, um, you know, about the nature of human power and, and the meaning of his death. James and John are not only the only disciples that desire that personal reward either. I mean, this is something that, that you find within the disciples as well. Like the other disciples, they get angry with James and John because they got there first, right? They, they, they're, they're indignant uh, about what James and John are asking for. And Jesus corrects their vision by holding up the conventions of the Gentile or Roman socio-political authorities as negative examples. Like he actually says that, that they regularly overpower, they tyrannize others in chapter 10, verse 42. He actually goes on. He says, uh, when the 10 heard about this, right? So this is when they're hearing about it. And it says they became indignant with James and John. Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, right, talking about the Roman Empire, lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so he talks about the idea that the, these people who lord things over them, their authority over them, they rely on coercion and control to maintain their dominance and their privileges. Greatness with Jesus, though, with Jesus' followers, is measured by their ability not to live as people who lord things over people, but as their ability to be able to live as servants and slaves, even if that means suffering and oppression at the hands of those who wield the power. 
We don't like that. But Jesus' final line on the topic is, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his his life as a ransom for many. And so he connects to his words about service and enslavement, indicating that his death will be exemplary for that kind of way of living. His death will exemplify the the violence and resistance his teaching and ministry is going to produce in those who would hold power over society. And it'll demonstrate a radical renunciation of authority and privilege as these things are normally constructed, right? In terms of the way we normally see these things play out. So what makes this renunciation so radical is, is the identity of the one who renounces it. Jesus, God's own son, uniquely authorized agent. The king of creation came to serve creation. The king of creation submitted himself to creation. That's not a small thing. And so James and John are asking for opportunities to exercise authority, to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. It meant that they were rulers with Jesus Uh, above the other disciples and certainly above the world itself. And in speaking into this, Paul has this this understanding of who Jesus is that's at the time very different than what James and John were experiencing. Now, James and John certainly came to experience Jesus in his fullness later and his understanding who he was later. But at this point, they were jostling for position and for power. Uh, I don't know if it's for prestige or not, but certainly... They wanted authority. But Jesus offers us something better than authority. In Philippians 2, 3-7, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. And so what Jesus is doing here is in his giving of this understanding to Paul and having lived out this life, it's the idea like Jesus didn't do anything out of selfish ambition, not in vain conceit. So Jesus' life was not about what he could gain from people. I mean, again, he said that he came to serve. And and so it wasn't about him being number one, even though he was number one. It it wasn't selfishness that was part of his world. When you compare Jesus' attitude to James and John in that encounter with them, like Jesus knew that he was going to go die and be ridiculed and humiliated. But he also knew that James and John were not going to be able to do that. They were seeking this selfish ambition and vain conceit. And Jesus was seeking servant hearts. And in our relationship with each other, this idea of serving each other, this idea of not seeking our own glory, not seeking our own power, prestige, um, preferences, the idea of, of... looking out for the interests of others and not just interested in my own things. And I think when we talk about the idea of what it means to be people who serve, there's this attitude that we need to have, this idea that I need to think about others 
more highly than myself. Not the idea, it's not the idea of pulling myself down, it's the idea of raising other people up. And so in doing that, my attitude shifts. My attitude is one of, I'm not seeking prestige, I'm not seeking power, I'm not seeking my own way, I'm gonna seek the interests of others. And if I'm seeking their interests and they're seeking my interests, then guess whose interests are all taken care of? All of it. Jesus cares about our relationship with Him and with each other. And this is something that James and John missed in this particular encounter. They were seeking their relationship with Him, but it was one where they gained something and they were able to then lord it over others. Jesus cares about our relationship with Him and with each other. And so that attitude that we need to have is this idea that I need to serve my brother and sister in faith. I need to consider their needs. I need to look out for their needs is kind of the, the idea here. And my attitude towards it needs to be one where I want to raise them up without trying to seek raising myself up. If I'm raising them up and they're raising me up, we're good. We're taken care of. Like, it works. And so there's this attitude shift that needs to take place away from self and movement towards others. But that movement towards others is it requires something of us. We don't get to just talk about the attitude. We don't get to just display the attitude. The attitude actually needs to be activated. And so, for example, the idea here is that, that James talks about, he says, faith without work is dead. Faith is active or it's dead. Rich Mullins wrote a song, I forget the title of the song offhand, actually, but one of, the, one of the lines within the chorus is, Faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. <laughs> I want you to think about that for a second. If your faith is not active, if, if you're not actively serving, serving others, uh, serving Jesus within the body, serving Jesus on a daily basis, as we're going to talk about in a moment, the idea of, of we are pursuing our faith through active service, if that's not taking place, it's like having a screen door on a submarine. Like it's dead. You're not going anywhere. It's flooded. It's, it's done. It's useless. It's, um, it's certainly not helping anyone. James 1 22-25 says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James 2, 14 and 19 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, again, this is not saying that deeds save you, so please don't hear that. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, and this is the idea that, it, that it's trying to pick up on. If one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm and, and, and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Like if you know they're hungry, and if you know they're cold, and you don't do something to, to try and, and ease that burden in their lives, but you rather you just say, well, you know what, hey, just, you know, go get fed. 
and, and, and be warm. It's useless. It makes no sense. does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Okay, show, you, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith with deeds, by my deeds. You catch that? Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith without works like, is like a screen door on a submarine. It's useless. I love that imagery. When I have a headache or a sore back, I take ibuprofen to feel better. Faith without works would be like my going to the medicine cabinet, pulling out some ibuprofen, staring at it, putting it back and saying, yeah, that was great. It does nothing to ease my pain. It does nothing to ease my burden. Believing that it'll make me better is not putting that belief into action. It does no Good. And that's James's point. What well, good is our faith if we're not putting it into practice? Dead faith is a statement of, sorry, dead faith is a statement of faith without the lifestyle of faith. You catch that? It is a statement of faith without the lifestyle of faith. It's faith without teeth. It's saying, I agree with something, I believe that something is true, and because of this, I'm all right. Thanks a whole bunch. But God, and God requires nothing more. So the myth goes, and basically we just sit there and we nod our head at all the platitudes that people talk about. What James is warning us about here is that that kind of faith isn't faith at all because it fails to transform the person. Faith that sits around watching the world go by without ever engaging in it. I will say this, though. Uh, there are people out there who like to talk a lot about faith. People who rarely engage in genuine faith practice, but they have all the answers on how to practice that genuine faith. They're kind of like armchair quarterbacks, right? They're kind of like what you would call armchair Christians. They're not in the game, but they're certainly tossing you all the rules and they're tossing you all the plays of the things that you should do, right? Like you've heard of these armchair quarterbacks. James is talking about armchair Christians. James 2, 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's a God. Good, even the demons believe that there's a God and shudder. Those who believe in God, who believe the gospel, who never, never truly mature are the people that he's talking about here. Like you know what is true, but you're not doing it. You know Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but we're not participating in that. We, we know that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And yet our attitudes, our language about church is what I get from it rather than what I give in it. That's not Jesus' attitude. And so we're, we believe these things that are true, but our behavior, our actions are something somewhat different. Those who perhaps who go to church but never go beyond themselves to a lifestyle that can be identified by loving generosity and action are the people that he's talking about here. He says, you show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, you can talk about Christianity all you want, but if I can't see it in your life, I don't know that it's actually there. 
but I'll show you that I believe what I believe by how I live. I'll show you by how I live. Now, he's not saying that gospel proclamation isn't important. What he's saying is that belief alone, belief alone, you'll be saved, but your actions, your actions demonstrate your salvation. They are the, the fruit of our salvation. And, and here's an example that he uses too, and he uses a pretty extreme one. He says, hey, you say that you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And so what he's saying here is like, listen, if your faith is there, but you have faith without deeds, you're no better than the demons. Yeah. James is a tough pill to swallow sometimes. <laughs> he's a tough pill to swallow. Here's the deal. One of the things I love about Jesus is that uh, he always had time for people while he was wholly focused on his mission. As he went on his way, he, he didn't see people um, as distractions. Instead, he saw people as the mission and situations like this as divine opportunities. And sometimes we get busy, right? We get focused on the tasks that we need to fulfill, the responsibilities that we have in life, and our own agenda. You know, we're, we're kind of just marching along in life and we tend to see people as interruptions instead of opportunities to serve and allow God to intervene in these people's lives using us. And when this happens, we lose sight that Jesus has called us to serve people and our ministry is to people. See, Jesus didn't just serve when he arrived. He served as he was going. We catch that? Jesus didn't just serve when he arrived at something. He served as he was going. So he served the disciples. He, he served the crowds. He, he, he served everybody that he encountered in some fashion or another. And what we tend to do is treat service like an event on the calendar. And Jesus treated it like a lifestyle. We can't mix those two up. He served people when he went along his way. He didn't just keep on going. He stopped. He took time for people. He delayed his own plans to serve others in need. And to serve as Jesus would serve, we also have to be open to some more spontaneous things that happen in life, more spontaneous opportunities that happen in life. You know, something different than what we may have planned. Jesus served. And we're not greater than him. So we Sir, and when we do this notion of not thinking so highly of myself, that I'm going to value the needs of others above my own, not that I'm going to neglect me, but I'm going to value them, as I make sure that in my value of them, in my attitude, I'm going to have this attitude of humility. Of We're going to talk about that next week, but we're going to be this servant-focused person. I'm going to serve people. That's my disposition. And then in doing so, I'm going to make sure that people are opportunities and I'm going to try and develop this attitude of Jesus and then I'm going to recognize that my, my faith requires me to move. There's going to be service. There's going to be works that are involved in it, fruit from my salvation. Then I'll understand that this concept of Jesus came, coming to be served, sorry, to serve and not be served and that I'm not greater than him. So here's what I want us to do. I want us just to have one to do from this message. That's it. One thing to do. 
Start serving. Start serving. Stop making it about you. Make it about others. Serve everyone that you come across in whatever fashion needed, and then also find a regular ministry for you to be involved in to serve in. That's it. That's what we need to do to become more and more like Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for our time and looking at what it means to serve like you. Have your mindset, mindset where, where we recognize that our desire is to see the needs of others get met as they see our needs get met. And Lord God, when we do this together, everyone's taken care of. And so Lord God, would you help us to be a people who dive deep into that, deep into the idea of serving everyone we encounter in some way or another and finding ourselves a connecting point to serve with you more regularly. In your name I pray. Amen.